Welcome to the audio channel of Dr. Sadaf. Preach Christ, teach the Bible, make disciples. Let's get one thing straight. This sermon has absolutely nothing to do with the one preaching it. And it has everything to do with the one the sermon is about, the risen Jesus Christ. The greatest sermon ever told consists of one sentence, three words, he has risen. And it's the greatest sermon ever told because it changes everything. It's effectual. It forever changed the face of history as we know it. The greatest sermon ever told, he has risen transformed the Roman Empire. They were the ones who crucified Jesus to a hundred years later adopting Christianity as their state religion. He has risen changes everything. He has risen took disciples who were afraid, who were cowards, who when Peter, for example, rejected Jesus three times, he has risen turned him into a fearless lion who died for Jesus Christ the Messiah. The greatest sermon ever told, he has risen, is the greatest because it changes everything. It's effectual. Now, specifically speaking, what I hope to do today is reveal three specific ways that he has risen changes things for our lives in 2017. He has risen is going to, number one, raise our consciousness. He has risen is going to raise us up in our conflicts. And he has risen is going to raise us up at our conclusion. So the first point, he has risen raises our consciousness. The crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ raises our consciousness. Now, how does it do that? because it highlights one crucial point, that all dramatic change involves violence. One more time, all dramatic change, the, cru the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ raises our consciousness to the fact, to the pressing reality that all dramatic change involves violence. To make this plain. If you reach a point in your life where you decide, you make the decision that you are now going to be well, you can say, I'm no longer going to be a sex addict. I'm no longer going to be a pornography addict. I'm no longer going to be an addict to alcohol or to heroin. And you make the choice to be well and you have the fleshly, carnal version of yourself going head-to-head -head in the battlefield of your mind with that spiritual version of yourself, which now says, I'm going to choose to now do what is right. There's going to be violence on that battlefield between your spiritual self and your fleshly self, and it's going to hurt. You're going to get bruised you're gonna get knocked down 
because when you crucify your flesh, we begin to realize that all dramatic change involves violence. And in that violence, we see that the self suffers because you make a decision to be well. And the old version of you and the new version of you go to war. So the person who's going to suffer that violence is you. Now let's put this in context. He has risen, raises our consciousness. 2,000 plus years ago when Jesus, God in the flesh, came on the scene, he began his public ministry to the Jews. He said, hey guys, guess what? God is here, I am the Messiah. All those Old Testament books you've been reading, they were talking about me. I'm God in the flesh, I am. But the Jews rejected him because they were used to God being impersonal, God being invisible, somewhere way out there you can't see, can't touch. Their idea of God was something set in stone by tradition. But what did Jesus do? He did violence to their idea of God. He said, look, you can touch God. It's me. I'm right here. He said, you can sit down and eat with God. He said, I am God in the flesh to make you realize that God is real. You can use your senses to experience me. And this completely threw the Jews for a loop. It did violence to their theological conception of who God was. And how did the Jews respond? Because the dramatic change of God becoming personable, the dramatic change of now God being in the flesh, assaulted their idea of who God was. And they had a deep-seated internal conflict. It was God is someone we know versus God right here. And those two ideas went to war. And how did the Jews respond? They took that internal violence and pushed it out. They said, we're not going to resolve this conflict internally. This guy, he's the problem. He's telling us a lie. He can't be God. And they took their internal strife, their unsettling of idea of who God really was. And they said, you know what, Jesus? You're now going to suffer because you can't possibly be telling us the truth. And they push that violence out. And the Jews brought him to the Romans and said, this guy is committing blasphemy. The Jews weaponized God's law and used it against God, Jesus. And they said to the Romans, you have to crucify him. So they pushed that violence out and made someone else suffer. What did the Romans do? The Romans did what they always do. They weaponized death. The Romans said, here's a guy calling himself the king of the Jews, but we're the Romans. This is our territory in Judea. No one can call themselves a king. That's a threat to our military force. So Jesus had this dramatic change, this dramatic idea that God in their midst was there. And the, that was too big of a change the Romans to accept. So what did they do? They dropped the mother of all bombs on Jesus on the cross. And they weaponized death. 
and put him on the cross, and they actually advertised his crime. In three different languages, it said, above Jesus' cross, king of the Jews, in Aramaic, in Koine Greek, in Latin, telling the entire world, if you have the audacity to make an, a change so dramatic, to question our authority, we're going to take that violence and make you suffer for it. So they, too, push that violence outward. Now, what does God have to show us in all of this? What Jesus showed us in his death on the cross and his resurrection is that to retaliate with evil only intensifies evil in the world. And someone has to have enough sense to stop the cycle of malice. See, the Romans and Jews were living in a world where everyone played the game of tit-for-tat justice. And we still live in that same world. Where if you hit me, I hit you. You hit me, I hit you. Someone says something bad to you, then you respond with evil words yourself. Now they have a reason to go back, and it goes on and on and on and on. We live in the fields of war where the good guys do something to the bad guys, but now on the bad guy side, innocent people suffer. So now guess what? The good guys become the bad guys, the bad guys become the good guys, and everyone has a reason to spite someone else. The cycle never ends. And the cross showed us someone has to, at some point, have enough sense to stop the cycle of malice. And how did Jesus do it? He looked out at the world and he said, everyone is guilty. Everyone has done violence to the law of God. But it doesn't benefit me one iota if they all perish and I'm going to make a dramatic change. I'm going to close the door on death and open the door to salvation. I'm going to shut the door of condemnation and raise everyone to, do life, to new life. And he has risen, testifies to that fact. Jesus instituted the most radical change humanity has ever known, but Jesus being God and Jesus being holy couldn't say never mind to sin. And because we did violence to God's law, a penalty had to be paid. Someone had to suffer violence. Someone had to suffer. And what did God do? He said, I'm not going to make my children suffer. I'm not going to make them be the victims of violence. I'm going to take all that suffering on myself. And I am going to bear the burden of the violence done against God's law. I am going to suffer. I am going to take all that violence in me and pay the ultimate penalty for sin. See, in many ways, what the cross was, it was a spiritual vacuum that broke the chain of evil where God said all of the hate, all of the envy, all of the malice, all of the murder that humanity has, the entire weight of penalty of sin, I will suffer for your sakes so you don't have to. And because humanity has done violence to my law, 
I will now be the sacrificial substitute so that anyone, anywhere, at any time has the, the debt owed to God paid forever. And at some point in our Christian walk, we have to embrace the reality that when we read stories in Luke and Matthew, Mark, and John, and listen to the crowds that persecuted Jesus, we have to at some point see ourselves in that story. Because when we violate God's law and do violence to his commandments, we are the ones who are in fact driving the nails into Jesus' wrists. And we are the one who are driving the nails into Jesus' feet because we did violence to his law and telling Jesus, right now, we don't want you. We want to do what I feel is right. And with that eternal scope of sin in mind, he said, I'm not going to make you suffer for that violence. I'm going to accept it on myself. And the spiritual vacuum of the cross drained the penalty of sin that now must be paid for the entire world. Now, what can explain such an act? What can explain God coming in the flesh and doing a thing like this for our sakes? And the answer is simple. It is the love that God has for his children. The death and the resurrection of Jesus raises our consciousness to the force of God's love. Beloved, do we not understand that God is love and God is also omnipotent? A equals B equals C, which means that love is the most powerful force in the entire universe. Love is purposeful. And love is so powerful, it dismantled sin and death forever, as Jesus demonstrated on the cross. Love entails a deliberate course of thinking and subsequent action, contrary to what you may like or feel at the moment. Do we honestly think that Jesus liked the nails in his wrists? Do we honestly think that he enjoyed the nails being in his feet? No, but he endured that for our sakes because of the love God has for his children. He saw something greater in mind and endured that temporary suffering in order to save us. A sister asked me two weeks ago, preacher, I heard you tell me a little while ago that everything is God's plan A. But what happens when plan A doesn't feel like plan A? And I'm going to answer that question with a question. Who defines plan A? Because if we look at Jesus on the cross, that was plan A, and that felt horrible. But that's what love can do. Love can have an eternal future preference, which can see beyond present circumstances for something greater. And make no mistake, love is not weak or passive. Jesus may have appeared to be weak on the cross. He may have given us the impression that he was someone lowly, but that was God on a cross who at any moment could have called down heavenly angels and struck everyone dead. 
which tells us that love may appear weak on the outside, but on the inside is a ferocious spiritual lion. It also tells us how Jesus laid there on the cross. Love informs how we think about power. Power, therefore, is not something that should be used against other people to crush them or to harm them. But real power, divine power, manifested by Jesus on the cross, shows us real power means using your power responsibly with truth, justice, and righteousness. This is what Jesus did for us on the cross. And he has risen, raises our consciousness. Because just now the women came to the tomb and the text says they remembered, they looked back. When we remember and we look back to what Jesus Christ did in his death and his resurrection, we come to two realizations. Number one, that any dramatic change involves violence. And number two, that the love of God manifested on the cross is the most powerful force in the universe. The second point. He has risen, raises us up in our conflicts. He has risen, raises us up in our conflicts. How does it do that? The resurrected Christ highlights to us that suffering is not for nothing. Suffering is not for nothing. The reason why I love reading the Bible is it's, it's, is it's because it's about real people having real life experiences in real life. And it points to the reality that God is a God who suffers. Do we realize that God is a father who lost a son? He lost a child. My wife and I can testify to the fact that when we lost our daughter, that's something which completely shakes you to the core. It makes you look at yourself in the mirror and ask, what's the point of all of this? What's the meaning of life? God can relate to that because he's a God who suffers. We talk about police brutality in 2017. Do we realize that Jesus was the victim of Roman soldier brutality? There was no videotape back then, but look at the historical record in the Gospels. He was brutalized and tortured by officials of the state for a crime he did not commit. Do we realize that Jesus is a God who suffers? Jesus got locked up. Jesus went to jail. Jesus was an innocent man who was put behind bars for doing nothing wrong. Jesus is a God who suffers. He, he was a man who laid on the cross and looked up to heaven and said, why me? In the height of, in the height of his suffering, he said, why is this happening? He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God is a God who suffers. And he has risen, raises us up in our conflicts because we realize that suffering is not for nothing. 
the point of the suffering, when we realize that he has risen, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, we realize that God had a plan, that God had a purpose, that God had a design, and the suffering on the cross was not the end of the story. Because on Friday, Jesus suffered, because God is a God who suffers. But on Sunday, they came to the tomb and said, he has risen. I am not here today to give you a specific scientific breakdown as to why you're going through what you're going through. I can't give you precise, specific reasons. What I can tell you is that suffering is not for nothing, and God is a God who suffers. And God allowed his son to endure the heartache of the cross for our sakes. But that was never the end of the story. So you may be on the Friday like Jesus, where you feel the weight of your sorrows, and you feel like all hope is lost. You may be on the Saturday of the, resurrection, of the resurrection weekend where you feel uncertain, where you feel unsure, where you feel as if everything you have done thus far means nothing. But then when Sunday morning comes and you reach the tomb and the tomb is empty, you will be asked, why do you seek the living one among the dead? Because he has risen and suffering is not for nothing. But it gets better. Not only is suffering not for nothing, Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. He shows us, he tells us, he demonstrates suffering is not for nothing, but in the depths of our sorrow, he's also the one who assists us. Truly, he may not say a word, but when we bear our cross and we're walking down the Via Dolorosa, the road of sorrows. He is the one who has promised to come behind us and lift up the heavy part of the cross and encourage us as we walk forward. And although he may be silent, silence does not equal absence. And he has told us, I shall never leave you, I shall never forsake you, and I will be with you until the end of the age. And as we, tro and as we march on forward, we feel his presence with us. And as we walk down that road, we can see the blood-stained footprints of Jesus ahead of us that reminds us that suffering is not for nothing. And because suffering is not for nothing, that makes the low lows that we experience in this life all the more insignificant when we will experience the high highs in eternity where a weight of glory is so glorious, it'll make everything we've experienced in this life simply untrue by comparison. The final concluding point is that he has risen, raises us up in our, at our conclusion. He has risen, raises us up at our conclusion. He has risen. The reality of the resurrected Jesus Christ is the receipt that we have in our hand that the debt owed to God has been paid. 
We live pretty close to New York City, so everyone knows you go into a store and you walk out of a place or try to walk out, and you have goods on your person, but no receipt, you're going to jail. You're getting locked up. You're going to be put in chains. You're condemned. If there is a mismatch between what your receipt says and what you have on your person, you're getting locked up you're going to jail. But if you have a receipt in your hand that accounts for everything you have, you are free to go about your business. And he is risen, is the blood-stained receipt from Jesus' shed blood on the cross that we hold in our hand. It's the receipt that says we are set free, we are liberated, we can't be thrown in jail, we cannot be condemned, because the receipt says he has risen. He has risen changes everything, because the only way real people get real salvation is by the real bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has risen changes everything because Jesus already did what you could never do, conquer death, our greatest enemy in the world. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? There is none because the receipt in our hand says he has risen. As we leave here today, we remember the receipt in our hand tells us that the debt has been paid. The receipt in our hand tells us that suffering is not for nothing. And the receipt in our hand tells us that all dramatic change involves violence. So as Galatians 5.24 says, what will we crucify in order to belong to our Lord and Savior? What can we put to death so that we can truly live? He has risen assures us that Jesus is the champion that subdues the great equalizer. So now death is but a dark tunnel that leads us into eternal light. The scripture says, I know that my Redeemer lives. It doesn't say I'm probably sure. It doesn't say I'm uncertain. And it doesn't say his Redeemer or her Redeemer or that Redeemer. It says, I know, I am assured, I am confident that my personal Savior lives. He is not dead. And we're assured of this. We are assured of new life. We are assured of crucifying that old version of ourselves because the receipt in our hand that we can proudly raise says he has risen. Church, God bless you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Dr. Sadafo. For more valuable information and resources, please visit chesadafo.com.